and I had an intervention done uh, on the night of August 26, uh, 1992. August 27th was my first sober day, and as I sit here today, I'm 26 plus years sober, and my life has never been as good. And to me, really, that has been the greatest thing in my life because I realize that golf is what I do. It's not who I am. In 1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Okay, Colin, really excited to be back with you for part two of the Silver Club podcast. Uh, We've got the legendary coach Bill Harmon coming up here in just a moment. And if you haven't heard part one, Hop on our website, silverclubgolfingsociety.com. Check out our podcast. You can get it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Check us out. But Bill Harmon, uh, in our fourth episode here uh, and part two of this wonderful podcast, we, we were uh, in this wonderful part one with Bill Harmon. He talked to us about some, some great stories about uh, his time at Seminole and hanging with Ben Hogan. You know, let's talk a little golf course architecture here. So, the 2020 U.S. Open is going to be at Wingfoot. He'll talk a little bit about you know how difficult Wingfoot is, and you know they're going to convert the the par five number five into a par four. So the first five holes there at Wingfoot will uh, you know can likely determine the outcome of the U.S. Open in 2020. But talk to us about some of those uh, you know let's just talk golf architecture and the the beauty of Tillinghast and you know some of your some of your thoughts I mean you're a, you're a golf historian I mean drop us some knowledge here well first off give we gave Riviera a shout out for being a sort of a perennial comp, a venue for league competition you have to say the same about Wingfoot easily the best 36 hole private club in the world um, better than Royal Melbourne oh I guess you're right well how about better than uh, let's see Baltus Rawl or I mean I guess they're all they're all pretty good right <laughs> if we have to defer to the rankings, which are, you know, it's a bad, bad instinct. But listen, this place was um, originally part of the New York Athletic Club and their marching orders to Tillinghast was a man-sized golf course. Uh, for the West. And the East was a perfect companion to it. And it had the U.S. Open when it was barely five or six years old, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. More Jones won. And then it's and then it's had the the amateur in forty, and then it's it, men's amateurs, women's amateurs opens nonstop, and it returns. And lovely club, a wonderful a wonderful shrine to golf. What makes a great piece of property in golf architecture? I mean, does it does it have to have a lot of elevation, a little elevation? Like, what's what's a great piece of property in your mind? I think like well, that, that property there isn't a, a tremendous amount of elevation. Um, there's not a lot of biodiversity. It's just, it's, it's, it is quintessential spectacular parkland, but I consider that a fairly um, limited and one dimensional uh, category. What I love um, about Wingfoot though, is how the, the, the fairways sweep. They, they stand on the tee and it's like a 
sweeping left or sweeping right or uh, you, you have your line and your distance have to match off the tee there so well. And I, I love that about the architecture there. But let's talk a little about the best hangs in golf, the best place to just after your round, hang out, have a, what do they have? South sides at uh, national golf links or, uh, you know, what's, what are some of the coolest hangs in golf in your mind? Well, you know, the, I, I, they can be both, right? They can, it can be, it's, it's all about company. It's just as long as the, yeah, um, very true, very true. As long as they have, as long as they have a liquor license, I guess that, you know, or even if you're able to tailgate in the parking lot, but <laughs> I, I, I think, um, I, I think anywhere that allows the, uh, allows the groups to sort of come in in an organic way and just sit around and meet and greet and hang out and um, nothing formal. You know, I, as much as I love a lot of the old clubs, I love their, I love their courses. There's nothing worse than kind of um, uh, a clubhouse environment where everyone's dying to be offended, <laughs> where there's no room to relax, where the, where it's just, it's just the last place you want to be. Um so anywhere, I, 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 I think anywhere, it's easy to get it right just by doing nothing, <laughs> just by having, just by uh, letting people sit outside on the, uh, I, I do think we, we talked about this once, anywhere where you can be on the porch and see uh, the 18th green and the first tee is always, is always a clubhouse has an edge. I, re, I, I always regret when you have a, you finish the round and you kind of walk a, 200 yards to the clubhouse and you go around the other side and then you sit inside and then you're almost sort of removed from the very court you just played. I love, I love sort of coming off the courts and in national, it's hard to beat national where you, you, you come back to the clubhouse and then the, the group behind you, you may or may not know them. They're, they're going to be coming up in fairway and you, you watch them play their second or third shot. That's always, that's always fun where, where the porch becomes, yeah, I, I think that's that's lost on a lot of a lot of the newer places. Uh, I, I, not a lot, but 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 many of the newer places. I think that that aspect is lost. Where the yeah, the the clubhouse and the the you know the bar, I guess, is the, it should be just like the extension of that 18th green, and you just kind of float up there. If anybody's been lucky enough to play at Friars Head, man, that that is a that is a super transition right from the 18. You know, you just kind of whisk your way up to the up the stairs and up to the bar. Even a the new uh, fantastic Gil Hans venue in in Georgia, Vidalia, Georgia, the Onion Capital, uh, the Hoopy Match Club. Been lucky enough to play there. I think uh, I think you know a little bit about the Hoopy Match Club, and I think it has just what you said, right? Like you you sit there on the porch and. You're looking at the 18th green, and the first tee is right next to that. It's like you just want to, you know, you can either hop over to the bar or just go right back to the first tee and loop around again. It's perfect. Yeah, you're just a doubled cross seven iron away from taking out sort of someone on the porch there. That's that's great. That's a, that's a clubhouse engaged to the course, engaged to the first tee, and it's 18th green. It's the flow, um, right? People miss the like a lot of a lot of these uh, a lot of these new places. They miss the they miss the flow. Flow is a is a huge part of the experience, right? And and it just it it kind of makes or breaks the round. It's kind of like having a, a sandwich, 
with like, you know, the best boar's head roast beef and fine provolone. And then you get an old uh, moldy piece of rye bread. You know, it's like it's, it kind of it just spoils the whole thing. Right. Well, you, you have to when you get to a certain point where you, you can't rely on enjoying your game is what it is and it may or may not be good. And but you, it's the company and it's the it's the sort of drinks and meal afterwards that you, you you can't be denied if you deny that then uh then you, you're gonna have a rebellion on your hands well <laughs> well uh someone who doesn't have a rebellion on his hand is bill Harmon. bill bill Harmon. this is a uh, part two of our great podcast with bill Harmon coming up right now can't wait to hear all he has to say uh, about his history, uh, you know, we're going to even talk a little bit about, uh, you know, he's had some battles with addictions over time and, and you know, being sober for many years and, uh, and how he's giving back now. So uh, everybody have a great listen now to part two of Bill Harmon on the Silver Club podcast. Talk about your connection with the with the Haas family in general. Um, you know, Bill Haas is 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 somebody who you've very uh, gifted. You, you've 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 uh, worked with, and and I know he's uh, you know since this that crazy accident that yeah. happened uh, back in 2018 during the Genesis Open in in L.A. You know, you know how how's Bill doing? And and you know with his psyche and his you game have to and that sort of thing. Him. You know, he uh, he actually the person that tragically died in that car wreck was a good friend of mine. Bill had only actually known him for two days. And uh, so, you know, that's the type of thing you don't really ever forget. You know, you're, you're in an accident and you come out without one stitch in your body and a guy sitting 18 inches from you passes away. So uh, he didn't talk about it a lot. I don't ask about it a lot, but I have to assume that it's uh, affected him greatly. Uh, he hasn't had a good year since that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Steve, uh, there's never been a player that's played good every year. And so Bill's no different than anybody else. He's going to have to pick himself up from the bootstraps and, and go work out a little bit harder and figure out how to turn 72s in the 69s again and 69s in the 67s. You know how it is. Uh, everyone thinks that, uh, you know, you are all good players when you're playing good. Mm-hmm. But Frank Beer told me a story about Nicholas one time. Frank was a leading money winner back in the 60s. He said he never played on tour with a player that wasn't capable of shooting 65 the same day Jack shot 65. Mm-hmm. But let's say they did it the first round. Now they go out on the range on Friday and they don't have it. That happens. You put the club in your hand, you sure. feel right, you feel funny at the top, you know, and <laughs> happens and, to all and of you're us, hooking right? one and you're blocking the next one. Mm-hmm. and said, the difference is Jack would have said, you know what, I don't have it today. I'm going to figure out how to shoot 70. Mm-hmm. The other guy panics and shoots 77. Jack finds it on the range mm-hmm. Friday night, shoots 67, 67, wins the tournament. Frank's point was he won the tournament on Friday because he turned a 75 into 70. Where the uh, maybe less accomplished player didn't know how to do that. And he just went right. ahead and shot a 77 because he's comparing himself to the day he shot 65. Now, that doesn't show up on TrackMan. Correct. See, that doesn't show up <laughs> on flight scope. Correct. I'm not too sure the sports psychologist mm-hmm. knows that, you know. So the players 
Uh, like I said, I, I care. I observe players more than I observe their swings. I When I watch Nicholas's back nine in 86 at the Masters, I just watch how he acted because he looked totally comfortable. Mm-hmm. Tiger didn't look comfortable the back nine at Carnoustie. Mm-hmm. He didn't look comfortable the back nine in the last couple of holes at Del Reeve. Mm-hmm. Jack looked comfortable. <laughs> he did. You know why? Because Jack could drive it. True, yeah. Tiger couldn't. I'm not knocking Tiger. Yeah, he, he, and Tiger's, this is, this Tiger's is, found it. This is an observation. <laughs> sure, sure. That Jack was well out of the limelight by that time. Him being in that position was highly unusual. And he looked like that this is where I'm at, baby. If you just watch him, we all know the shots he hits, but you watch him, you're a player. He never once looked nervous. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, and I'd have bet my life Tiger would have missed a fairway in seventeen at Bell Reef when he had to hit a good one. I'm not knocking Tiger; he's the best. He and Jack are the two best I've ever mm-hmm. seen. But I think the difference between the two, if I had to say a difference, is that Jack could put it in play when he had to. Mm-hmm. I don't recall t- Jack hitting drives off the charts when the tournament was hit. Yeah, yeah, you see, definitely seen Tiger over the years take out that two iron and, you know, he can hit it uh, 250, 260. Easily. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and get it in play and mm-hmm. get it down there. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he kind but of... That was a par five there at uh, Bell Reeve, but, you know, he's missing the fairways mm-hmm. with irons at Carnoustie, and that was kind of unusual because he was playing beautiful. I'm a big Tiger mm-hmm. fan, by the way, yeah, but I, I watched that stuff, you know, and... And if he's going to win another major, he's going to have to hit some good drives a back nine someday. Now, when when your brother Butch is working with Tiger, mm-hmm. you know, back uh, several years ago now, uh, how much time did you spend any time around them when they were doing a their thing? A little bit, yeah. And I would talk to Butch about it. And um, my theory on this is uh, I have two theories here. And I haven't even spoken to Butch about one. The first one is people say, why did... Tiger Lee Butch, and perhaps there was a personality conflict. It's very possible because they're both very stubborn, very good at what they do, and they're bullheaded. So it had all the, the ingredients for something like that. I also think that Tiger's a golfing genius. And when he asked Butch to rebuild his swing after winning the Masters by 12, Butch said it was the most difficult thing of his career because if he didn't pull it off, his career was over. See, it wasn't Butch's idea to change it. It's Tiger's idea. Mm-hmm. So he got kind of caught in the middle of this thing. And it produced golf like no one's ever seen. So Butch was obviously very proud, but also relieved because his career was over if this thing goes south. Because they would all blame it's, him. It's certainly a risky situation, yes, isn't and, it? <laughs> and it wasn't his uh, decision to do it. And so I think that when Butch finally said, all right, this is it. The overhaul is done. Now we do oil changes and it's over. Nobody can beat you. I think as a genius, Tiger had to feel there's got to be a better way. I can't stop. I don't know how to stop. And, and, and so he went to Hank and he won a lot of tournaments with Hank. And then by that time, by the time he got to Sean, he was injured. Mm-hmm. And Chris Como, he was injured. So those two guys uh, didn't get. They kind of get a pass, right? <laughs> they should, I think. No, because, but I do think this, I will say from an instructor's standpoint, I think Butch broke the, uh, the Rubik cube with Tiger. Tiger's hips were so fast on the downswing. Now, he didn't know it. 
You know, when people <laughs> run fast, they don't know they're running fast. They're just running, right? <laughs> well, when you move your lower body that fast, it tends to drop the club way underneath. So everything Butch did with him, you can't tell him to slow down his hips. You can't tell a guy under pressure, have slow hips here on the last hold, Augusta. So he figured if he got him as wide as he could get him, when he rerouted, he'd reroute on plane. Now, the other teachers started getting him flatter and more rounded. And when he rerouted, he started hitting it sideways. Yeah, he just so was I so late with the back, delivery. Back to what Butch learned from my dad. He took Tiger's swing. He took Tiger's abilities and said, how do I make them work? Now, anybody that knows anything about instruction will tell you that Tiger's backswing now is much closer to where it was with Butch. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that, too. Much closer. Not go never going to be the same because physically he can't do some of the stuff. True. The left arm is higher. Mm -hmm. And what's he doing? He's driving better. <laughs> See, Butch convinced him that if he could drive it good, he could not be beaten because he was the best in the world from 150 yards in. So in their heyday, they had a little uh, Cobra metal-headed driver. Did he use that when he beat you? <laughs> he sure did. Yeah. Steel shaft yes. and about 43 inches Short long. Short driver, yes. Much shorter than the traditional uh, driver now. When he left now. Butch and he went to Hank, and this had nothing to do with Hank, by the way. And Butch said he went to a longer driver, light graphite shaft with a big head. He says, you watch, this is going to be a club fitting 101. The longer the club, the more you drop it under. So this club is going to work against him. But Tiger's ego, for whatever reasons, is this distance thing, which I don't get. He's got plenty of it to burn. I don't get it. I just, I don't understand why he's constantly talking about his numbers and this and that. And uh, because you saw it, his immeasurables are, uh, you know, he, Tiger Woods won because he was Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. I think he won more because his swing was better with Butch, in my opinion. But, and I'm not really biased by that. I look at things pretty much. I don't know of many instructors that would tell you that, that swing he had in 2001 pretty good. It, it was, yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, the virtuoso performance at Pebble Beach. And I mean, you St. know, Andrews I, by St. Eight or nine, I mean, you could you know. sit there and, and, and watch that one shot he hit at, at St. Andrews. It was on the 14th hole, a par five. That steeple hit, there, Stevie? Hit, hit, <laughs> hitting his three wood. Yeah. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could, you could sit there and watch that one shot all day and the confidence that he, he exuded when he struck that shot. And, uh, you know, that, that is vintage Tiger Woods. I but do have it on pretty good, pretty good information that when Butch heard that Tiger was not going to, that he was going to go on his own, not have a coach. I have it on pretty good information that he sent him tapes and pictures of his swing in 2000 and said, do what you want with it. <laughs> <laughs> but from my perspective, his backswing is much closer to it was when he worked with Butch than the other guys. And, and I think more than anything, uh, Butch felt when he got flatter and those quick hips, uh, he just couldn't catch up. Mm -hmm. Or he would then have to stop and catch up and hit it straight left. So, and I still believe today that uh, uh, Tiger will win another major. You know, to say he's going to win four more would really be something to tie Jack. But I think he's in the ballpark now to have a chance. It, it appears that he's found his driver a little bit. Yes, I think he he's added a lot more loft to his driver, which, uh, you know, a little bit more backspin helps create a little straighter flight. So that, that may... Uh, 
But like you said, he's still long. So what difference does it make if, if Dustin Johnson or Cameron Champ can outdrive him? I mean, just look at the records. You know, we're all of a sudden, uh, everyone's anointing Cameron Champ as the next it. Well, he might be, but he's won one tournament. And then you, and you know this, you start putting that kind of pressure on a young kid. These guys are human. If, if you See, don't have, Roy, I don't think liked all the attention. It, he was the next it, and he hadn't won a major, and I don't know how long. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, you do have to have a certain. It's it's a very selfish mindset. I think you have to have when you're on the top, and and you're your own corporation, your own team, um, and it's uh, it, we 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 saw that with Tiger a lot. It's been well documented in a lot of things, but you know, just just you know, moving along the, the instruction line. Let's talk about your you know your day to day instruction. You know, since the Silver Club podcast. Uh, you know, we're, we're reaching out to the, you know, the competitive amateur golfer mm-hmm. and the, the, the people who love architecture and, and golf swings and, and all that. You know, if, if there was, a, you know, one or two things that our listeners could, could put in their own game today from your wealth of experience, what would it be? Well, um, unfortunately, the people that teach the tour pros get the most publicity. But the tour pros uh, are maybe one-tenth of one millionth of one percent to play the game. And so the amount of teachers that actually get to teach the tour pro is actually a very small percentage. Uh, 99.9% of my time is teaching my members and guests. And so I think the real teachers of the game are the ones that can take an 18 handicap to a 12, or 12 to a 7, or 7 to a 4. I think those are the really the lifeline of our game. Uh, and so whenever I see somebody, you know, take a 30 handicap and then they put Davis Love Swing up next to him, you know, I think this guy can't teach, you know. Uh, and so I, maybe you can use something from it, but uh, I kind of go with that story my, my dad told about Somebody said he wanted to swing like Sam. No, it was Tommy Armour, excuse me, the, the late Tommy Armour. Somebody wanted to swing like Sam Snead, and he took him over the putting green. And the guy said, I don't want to putt like Sam. I want to swing like him. He said, well, just come here a second. So he dropped the ball in the hole. He said, can you pick the ball out of the hole without bending your knees? The guy said, no. He said, well, then you can't swing like Sam, because he can, see. So our job, Steve, as working in the country club uh, and working with John Q, recreational player, is how do we get an 18 handicap to get to a 15 this season? And to me, that's real teaching. Mm-hmm. But I will say that probably 95% of uh, all amateur golfers have bad grips. Grip. Yeah. The old, the, See, the nobody, old first nobody, thing that you do. Nobody wants to change them because it doesn't feel good. You know, we're not allowed to. And I tell my students, unfortunately, my dad was a pathological truth teller. And as a kid, I didn't like it. I didn't like him telling me the truth. But now I understand what he was saying. And he said to me one day, because he changed my grip, I said, Daddy, you didn't feel good. You know, he said, oh, it didn't feel good, really. Wow. He goes, uh, he said, you appear to be a bright young man. He says, do you know what an inanimate object is? I said, I think so. He said, well, would you say the golf ball's inanimate? I said, yeah. He said, do you think the club face that's striking the ball is inanimate? I said, yeah, I'll give you that. He said, these two things don't care how you feel. That ball goes where the club face tells it to go. And if you have a bad grip, you're going to have to make a compensation in your swing. Now, there are many people that are talented enough to do that. 
but not a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if you have a bad grip, which alters the club face, which then means you have to alter your path, and you don't have a lot of talent, you're not going to get better. What, what, what would a, a bad grip in your mind be? Just either weight, weight. 99 or too weak. 99% too weak, weak. Yeah. left hand too far you under. You know, being a club pro, if you can get a slice or a hook and you got a student for life, really. Because <laughs> they never hooked a ball in their life. So I'm a believer that you have to change the grip because that's something that's going to influence 10 things without them thinking it. But they've got to go through the process of feeling uncomfortable. But the ball doesn't care how we feel. It's not in the downswing is not an encounter group. How do you feel, Steve? <laughs> your club face is five degrees shut and you're about to hit it and there's a lake on the left and you're one down playing 18. But how do you feel coming into the ball, you know? <laughs> so the, the ball goes basically where the club face tells it to go. So if you have a club face that is whacked out, you're going to be a whacked out golfer. How, how strong or how many knuckles maybe should you see in your left hand? Well, I would love to see three. If, uh, but everyone's different. Everyone has different hand action and stuff like that. Uh, but I would prefer strong to weak. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history of the game, how many great weak grip players? I can only think of Hogan and Miller offhand. Yeah, that's about Corey right. Corey Pavin was good, but I wouldn't say, I don't know if he was a great player. But, but they, tend to be, player. they tend to be shorter hitters, though, don't they? But there's a whole lot of good strong grip players. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I tend to think that even the history of great players would... Uh, uh, move people more towards a stronger grip. How about an older person who maybe doesn't have the flexibility to clear their hips so fast, you know, that maybe they can't get it so strong? How, how do you deal with a, a, a maybe an older gentleman or, le or woman that's less flexible? That's a good one. Um, I'm now that older gentleman. <laughs> uh, my distance train has uh, left the station, so I'm about where probably... If I hit a real good one, I'm, I'll be 69. If I hit a real, really good one, I can carry 250, 255, which for my age is fine, and I, I can play. But I understand the uh, the plight of that because there's nothing, there's no upside to losing distance. It's not a hard thing to say, God, this feels great. I've lost 10 yards <laughs> now. But you have to learn to play with what you have, and you can't live in the past in golf. So... Uh, I used to be able to hit a 7-iron 160, now I hit it 150. So you know what? When I have a 150 shot, I hit a 7-iron. And when I have a 160 shot, I hit a 6-iron. So there's a difference between being uh, stupid and stubborn. And if you mix both of them together, you're going to be in trouble. So I think uh, one of the things that I do with the, the older players, I get a more hip turn on the backswing. I'm not a big distance through resistance. I think all the old-timers, most of them lifted their left heel. Uh, they didn't injure themselves doing that. It took a much bigger hip turn than some of the modern day players who seem to be injured all the time. Thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, so I think, I think the game is starting to move back to some of the things that the older players used to do because they had longevity. You know, guys, some of these young guys look like they're one swing away from ending their career. Well, Jason Day has been hurt more than he ever should Justin be. Justin Rose has some issues, you know, Rory's had some issues, it's, and these guys are workout freaks and right? all this stuff, and, and they're on the injury. <laughs> so I think that at some point in time, we have to, uh, uh, smarter minds than I have to figure out what this body, if you want longevity, uh, you know, Nicholas was a huge, he picked that heel up, uh, Hogan did, Sneed did, they all did really, and so uh, VJ's a guy that picks it up, you know, so... There's an old adage that could be true that long swings last longer.
And I think it's true. I think we're seeing that with Phil Mickelson right now. He's he is hit the longevity. I think he'll career. be the first guy to win a major in his fifties. I believe that. Well, I, I, it, at the rate he's going, I think he's he's uh, he's going to do you it. Know, the other thing about him is he's not afraid. No, he's yeah. See, that's the immeasurable. The immeasurable, yes. You know, <laughs> that, that's See, a good track, combination. Track man can't coach the fear out of a man, you know. Right. <laughs> it might help you get a little more confidence, but when you get to the 18th hole. You know, and you're playing the last hole with Doral, and you tell me you don't see that lake, you're lying. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, how, how intimidated are you from it? But just, uh, um, I, I could just sit here and talk all day, and we'll, we'll kind of, you know, start to wrap things up here a little bit more. But back in, uh, you know, we talked a little about Newport Country Club, and, you know, read a story back uh, in late August 1992. You know, that was a, a point where you feel like your life started over in a way. What, oh, what, yeah. what, what do you mean? What did you mean by that? Well, I was an a alcoholic and a cocaine addict. Other than that, I was doing good. <laughs> but I, I was the quote-unquote functioning type, uh, which you're really not. You just think you are. But what I mean by that, I, I never missed a day of work. I was never late for work. I wasn't late for lessons. I could, I could go. And I had an intervention done. Uh, on the night of August 26, uh, 1992, August 27th was my first sober day. And as I sit here today, I'm 26 plus years sober. I go to six uh, recovery meetings a week. I was at one this morning at 5 a.m. I go to a meeting at 5 a.m. every morning. And my life has never been as good. And to me, really, that has been um, the greatest thing in my life because... I realize that golf is what I do. It's not who I am. And who I am, you know, I see pictures of your lovely wife and your kids. See, and today I'm a husband and a father. And if I can't be that, I don't care about the golf stuff. So I want to be in the Hall of Fame in my home. I no longer get defined by Golf Digest or Golf Magazine or outside influences. I define myself today. Am I a good friend? Am I a good husband? Am I a good dad? my good brother, my good employee, uh, and that's how I define myself today. But I couldn't do any of it if I wasn't clean and sober. And then two and a half years ago, I, I was uh, had throat cancer. Another lucky break, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. So everything about my life, the sobriety thing I've worked at very hard. That, that was something mm -hmm. that I had to do, mm -hmm. and I still work at it very hard. But the cancer thing, I got lucky because a lot of people have died from the cancer I have, or, you know, had their throat box taken out or something. And here I am, you know, just... Wow. Actually, my cancer was way down at the bottom of my tongue, so I thought it was... It wasn't lost on me that a Harmon had tongue cancer. <laughs> as much as we talk. <laughs> With all of our BS, I thought it was probably appropriate that I got it, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Well, look, no, you certainly wouldn't. Nobody wishes that on anybody. But that's that's really transition into the, you know, you're, you're giving back into the Harmon Recovery Center. Talk, talk well, about that's the our foundation, Harmon Recovery Foundation. And our, uh, our fundraiser, our annual fundraiser is uh, March 4th and 5th. And uh, it... I go to a lot of meetings, and I've never sat in one room, ever. I've been to 7,000, over 7,000 recovery meetings where I didn't feel like I was the luckiest person in there because I didn't lose everything. I didn't lose my wife and my kids and jobs and stuff. I was going to. You know, I just got lucky. 
And one day I saw a lady come in and she was just full of vim and vigor and I could tell she was doing everything she could to change her life. And one day she told her story and she was married to a prominent lawyer in Baton Rouge and she got an accident. She said she was a recreational drinker and drug user and she got addicted to pain pills. And when she fleeced every doctor in Baton Rouge out of it, she then had to go to the streets and the next thing you know, she. She lost her life, she lost her kids, were taken away by the court. And I don't know why it just made me mad. Not for her, but what addiction does to families. And I decided right then and there I was gonna do something. I don't know what I was gonna do, but was. so my wife and I started this foundation about seven years ago and we've donated over $2 million. And it's just her and I, we don't have a secretary or anybody doing the work. Uh, treatment centers, homeless centers, just trying to um, you know, when we started this interview, I told you how lucky I was to be a Harmon. Well, I want other people to have an opportunity to be lucky. They can never be as lucky as me, but... And so we get letters from uh, mothers and fathers that said they got their daughter back because of the treatment they got from our foundation. Or we might get a, a letter from a daughter that said, I got my mother back. And so I don't like the fact that uh, Alcoholism and drug addiction is a very selfish thing, and it ruins families, basically is what it does. And if you can save one family from that, and I think we probably influence a lot more than one, then they get to get what I got, you know? So I, 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 I believe that in the world of recovery, there's an expression, you have to give it away to keep it. And so we do our little part. Um, I was here the other day, a guy asked me, he's gonna participate, donated $20,000 to our foundation. And he asked me why I did it, you know? And I said, because I can, you know, because I have friends like you. <laughs> we're not doing it, we're not really, you know, we're, people are giving us money. And so we're very com uh, careful where we, we, we allot the money and stuff. and. Uh, I've since made the decision, I, I, I donate, uh, we donate to MD Anderson that took care of my cancer deal to proton radiation, which is the high, new best radiation when I was fortunate enough to get that. So uh, at some point in time, you just have to give it away. But my dad was a very generous man and my mother was generous. So we were raised this way. So it wasn't anything that I, I'm just carrying on the, uh, uh, the way we were raised, to be honest with you. Well, he didn't raise me to be a cocaine addict, but but he raised me to dig dig myself out of a hole, which I have. I were for many years. I I dug the hole and I put nice furniture in it so I could hang out there for a while. <laughs> well, look, you 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 talk about the Harmon family being lucky and yourself being lucky. Um, you know, I, I have to consider myself one of the luckiest people out there today to be able to sit here in front of you thank to, you, to hear these stories and. And, uh, you know, we, we can't thank you enough. Well, uh, let me finish something about you, because uh, there's a lot of golfers, and you see them nowadays, that had the promise that you had, and you gave it a try, and you had some success. But only you know that you woke up one day and said, you know what, either I'm not good enough or I, I've given it a try, and you went and you got a job at a club, and now you're a head pro. And now you're uh, affecting lives. Very few people in your position can quit playing competitive golf. Very few. The problem with it is they become in their 30, 35 years old, they're unemployable. They do not have a skill 
to make a living. So what you did is something I admire. What Jerry Haas did, I admire. Jerry was a good player, but he wasn't quite good enough. You know, won three or four times on the nation. I think he finished 127 twice on the money list. But at some point in time, he said, you know what, I've given it a shot. I want to do something else. And, and so I admire what you've done. I see the pictures of your wife and your kids on Facebook. And you have a marvelous life because you gave it your best shot. And you know you're still winning tournaments. You know, <laughs> you're going to be playing at the Quail Hollow this year, you know. And you're going to have those butterflies on your, you know, just keep your eyes on the ground. Don't look at any of your members, you know, like Hogan told my dad. You know, but you're still going to be in the big arena and well, that's pretty cool very few people have done in golf that you've done and i admire you for it i mean well, I, I appreciate that competition's in my blood it's in your blood yes, it's, it in, it's in all of our blood yeah. and uh uh you know it's in our listeners blood it's in everybody's you know who, who's out there who loves it's that that adrenaline rush to to hit that shot when you need to hit you've it you've been a good player which you have been uh see people who have never been any good don't know what it's like so if you went out and shot 75, uh, an 18 handicapper would think that's great. And I understand that. And they'll go good playing and you'll say thank you. But inside you're saying, you know what? I don't want to shoot 75 tomorrow. That was terrible. And so I think once you've been a good player, which you have, and you've been to the mountaintop really, uh, and the fact that you're still doing it, you're playing in two tour events this year. And uh, are you in the PGA? Uh, I've got the, the National Club Pro at the end go. of April. Top 20 will get in the PGA at Bethpage. There so that's that's on my bucket list. Boy, you're going to quail hollow in Bethpage. You're going to make here. Oh, man. I better. I, they better be firm and fast. That's all I have to say. Well, it's not going to be in May at Bethpage. But anyway, I've enjoyed, uh, yeah. I enjoyed following you, and I've enjoyed following your career. Thanks well, this, this has been a, a special moment. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Bill Harmon, hey, for pal. joining us on the Silver Club Good podcast God. today. Thank you. What a special and first-class human being that Bill Harmon is, and we cannot thank him enough for joining us for not one but two Silver Club podcasts. He gave us so many great nuggets. Remember, you can learn more about what the Silver Club Golfing Society is doing on silverclubgolfingsociety.com. And remember, you can check us out on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Silver Club Golf. Follow us, like, retweet, do all that great stuff. We'll be back real soon with another Silver Club podcast.